How do I start this again? <laughs> I'm completely lost. Hello everyone, this is Raphael. I am Lauren. We're the Pacheco siblings and welcome to the Hypercube Podcast, a talk show in which two siblings converse about anything and everything. So, I guess we're here for another episode. Here for another episode. Really quick, we were just yeah. talking right before we started. I was saying, I have a really loud clap. Do you know why? <laughs> why? Is there a particular reason why you have a very loud clap? Yes, and it is hilarious, I think. <laughs> All right. Way back Lightning. in the day, uh, when we were young children, we went to church. I went to church. You still do. I went to church. And I remember specifically, there was this one adult individual. I don't think we knew them personally. Who had a monstrous clap. <laughs> it, it, the, the kind that you can hear reverberating throughout the church, right? Where it's just uh -huh. like, oh, I know exactly who's clapping. Like, yeah. everyone else is clapping, and then there's them. Uh -huh. Monstrous, loud clap. And I was like, how the heck do you do that? <laughs> I spent, no lie, probably like a year learning how to clap. Oh, you did like a kung fu training montage? Yeah, because I, I- clapping? I couldn't comprehend why that one person was so much louder than everybody else. Yeah, that's like projection, but for your clap. Yeah, and like like figuring out like, like a flat hand versus cupped hands versus getting like, it turns out like having a nice, you can't see my hands right now, but I am demonstrating. <laughs> having a nice- Picture like, cupped, if you will. Yeah, picture if you will. Two cupped C hands cl uh, clasping together in such a manner that produces a loud clap. I can't explain it, but like, yeah, it's the cavitation. It's having that. Hold on, demonstrate air. for people's ears. Oh, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I just got smacked. Uh, it took me like, and legitimately, when I was a kid, I spent maybe like months to maybe a year figuring out how to clap. Of course, it, it took me that long because I didn't really care that much. It was just a, a passive interest, but yeah, I can clap super loud now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's certainly a gift. I suppose. <laughs> Whatever you need. It's it. something. <laughs> Gotta find your kids in the supermarket. Hey, clap. <laughs> oh, what was that? Is <laughs> that a gunshot? <laughs> clap. Oh, oh, <laughs> All right. So we're recording again. Yep. How have things been? Things have been mostly pretty good. I got my vaccine shot a couple days ago. Oh, and your booster. My bo I got my, my booster? booster as well. You're yeah. hot on the heels of me getting my booster yeah, last week. I put it off for forever. You got your booster and I was like, how the heck you get your booster and I didn't? I got my vaccine before you did. That is true. No, we got our vaccines at the exact same time. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I was supposed to get my vaccine before you did. But you didn't. But I didn't. We got them at the exact same time. Yeah, because I was supposed to get my vaccine through work. And then you ended up working for that company afterwards. And then we got him at the same time. But we didn't end up even getting it through work. Well, it was completely independent. Well, because work allowed me to be on the list for the vaccines because that was that's what put me on the eligible right. list right. initially. And I'm pretty sure I put in like, give me a vaccine. And they're just like, yeah, sure. In a moment. Yeah, you're on the list. And Until then, <laughs> you just went and did it yourself. Until yeah. it was like open enough to the general public. Because like here in PA, there was a tiered system, I believe. They had like different tiers of people who were allowed to go. First was obviously the more immunocompromised or elderly or people who were in healthcare. And then I think in part of that, there was like an A and a B section of, of tier one. The other section was like frontline workers. Well, not just uh, frontline workers. They also had a distinction of i forgot what they called it It was like necessary workers something like, like that like yeah yeah uh it, it was very demeaning sounding it was for a like little everybody bit. else but <laughs> yeah. it was these considered... guys have important work 
You do not. <laughs> yeah, basically. Life-sustaining. Life-sustaining, yeah, something yeah. like that. So we were packing food. So we were considered in, uh, essential. in that. That's the word. Essential workers. Essential workers. Essential workers. Yeah, that was the category term that they used. I'm not sure if that was used elsewhere, but it was used a lot here. In I, I did hear it a lot, uh, just like in online discourse. So I, I think mm-hmm. it was. But yeah, PA was all over the place. When it was it came to running it out. Yeah, they, they never got past that first stage. The yeah. CDC guidelines relaxed to the point where anybody can get it before PA ever got out of phase one. Oh, yeah. It was a mess. Yeah. Like. PA just could not distribute vaccines to save its life. Nope. Uh, it was bad. So Which it needed to save its life. So like evidently it just couldn't distribute it just couldn't. vaccines. It just couldn't. Yeah. So, so yeah, as soon as it opened up for everybody, we both went in and just like walked in and got a vaccine. It was so easy. Yeah. It, it was, was so, so easy. easy. It was like it was horrifically easy. Like how to set up an appointment to get your shot. I mean, it was crowded, you know, at that time. A lot of people were going for it. Yeah. I was surprised there were still people getting shots now when I went in last week. Yeah. I was like, oh, snap, I'm not the only one here. Getting uh, the boosters or like their actual first and second? Uh, it's all in the same sort of lobby area. They do. All yeah. the, they, they did both of them. So I don't know. Some people could have been there for boosters. Uh. Some people could have been there for their first or second times. Yeah, I, I didn't go back to the same place that we got our first vaccine. Oh, okay. I went to a different place this time. Oh, you can do that? Apparently. <laughs> well, because I have. I just went there because it was so easy to schedule. Well, same. I think just because I had appointments with them before. Oh, okay. They, yeah, it was a lot easier. Healthcare. Healthcare. <laughs> Extremely personal and a very, very region specific. Yeah. I just hope that if we were going to keep talking about region specific stuff, <laughs> let's talk more about America. No, I just hope that we get daylight savings time done away with. Yeah. Because that was a piece of legislation that unanimously passed can't remember if it was the House or the Senate, but one of the chambers of Congress. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, would be an epic win. Yeah, so, it's one of those about time moments. Yeah, about time moments. Yeah. Because it's like, why? Why was, do we have It this? was a failed experiment. Like, everybody failed universally experiment. agrees. And that's the thing, is a lot of people don't necessarily realize, I didn't even realize until very recently, how non-essential daylight savings time is. Yeah. Because, like, not only does it fail for its hypothetical purpose, which was to conserve energy. Right. It demonstrably failed at that. We have countless statistics that show that energy expenditure was basically not affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to pick a trend, it would be that it was worsened by it. So, <laughs> like, but not within any, you know, reasonable excessive margins of error. But if you were to pick a trend, it would not look good. And the main reason we kept it was because of a lot of lobbying from big oil and big sugar, which apparently apparently, apparently was the thing I didn't know about. But you say is is a whole cartel. Absolutely. It is literally a drug cartel. <laughs> literally a drug yeah, cartel. It, they have marketed and produced a thing that you are addicted to and you think it's good for you. Dealing in that sodium chloride. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's what it was. I'm that's trying to remember. I, is, I just right? said, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. No, that's salt. No, no, no. My bad. <laughs> they don't have anything to do with salt. Possibly. I don't know. Salt and sugar make a good combo. So maybe they're in cahoots. Ah, but salt in the hands of big pocket or the, the, the pocket of big sugar. Salt in big the pocket. The, that's a different the big pocket. That's the hot pocket. That's market. the hot pocket market. <laughs> <laughs> big pocket. <laughs> the hot pocket and other microwave Italian cuisine. Spit, but well, just, no, well, I have a whole tirade on big pocket and how, <laughs> and how they're holding out pockets on clothing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially women's clothing. I it's hear. a it's a it's a problem. It's a tragedy, I think, is a perhaps more apropos term from what I understand. Indeed. Uh, but, you know, this is. From yeah. an outside perspective, in my case, <laughs> yeah. this is only what I hear anecdotally. When you start stitching fake pockets onto clothing, you know you have a problem. That's a serious problem. It's a serious issue. Why don't we just all wear cargo pants? Because culture. That's true. 
That's true. It seems it, it gives off a vibe that not everybody wants to give off. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just walking around town and you know, like in baggy cargo pants. It's like, well, it's like, what are you doing? It's like pockets. Good point. That's a, it's fair. But what I was gonna go on to say in order to further trash daylight savings time is not only does it have all these things in its disfavor, but Aye. there's also the fact that like a lot of people don't entirely realize this. I certainly didn't realize this until very recently, until learning more about its history. Is that it is not like a vital or timeless part of reality. It has <laughs> existed reality. for my entire lifetime. And so I always thought that yeah. it was just a part of life. It yeah. was just, it was essential. It was just there. But it is a relatively recent invention. Yeah. Like within Apparently. the last century. Apparently. Yeah. So I knew it was recent, but I didn't realize how recent until you, you told me a little while ago. Oh, yeah. It was in the 20th century. Yeah. So which means a majority of this country's history has been without daylight savings time. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. Why do we still have it? Yeah. It's only we've just been in like a period of like 60 years of suck. <laughs> where like every once in a while, you got to get your sleep schedule wrecked. Yeah. But then you get it fixed like six months later. And yeah. But at that point, at that point, you're re-wrecking it. Are you re-wrecking it? Because you only get to sleep in. That's the only that's the only repercussion of the next time i don't know it just, it, it just throws it, extra hour of sleep is always good 100 percent of the time extra <laughs> hour of sleep is good if you could than one less hour if of you sleep. could just get one free yeah but it's not even one free hour because you're paying for it like six months ago it's true but it's like an investment because there's like you six months ago were like oh this sucks but then you six months later are like oh i'm getting paid <laughs> no <laughs> no i'm gonna vouch for socialism where none of that happens <laughs> where you don't have to suck to get paid <laughs> i guess it's it's a zero-sum game though because you you lose an hour and then you just gain the same hour yeah. so you're not really getting paid you're just back to zero percent return <laughs> you're just getting back to ground so i guess as far as investments go it'd be a terrible investment <laughs> <laughs> All right, get this. You're going to put this away, and six months later, you'll get it right back. No change. Cool. What, do, what, is, that, what, what is that all? Yep, that's it. Do, I just hold I on any, to it, and then I give what, it back to what you. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do anything with it. And for clarification on Big Sugar, apparently it's uh, part of what has kept it in business is lobbying from the sugar industry in order to create more daylight hours during Halloween to sell candy. Basically, apparently. So that's where that's where that angle comes in. It's a thing. I didn't know Big Sugar had that much lobbying power, Dude, but apparently candy makes a lot of money. Anything that you can be chemically dependent on will make money. <laughs> this is a fact. <laughs> I suppose that is uh, a fact of reality. It, it is. It's quite unfortunate, especially when you consider the amount of things that we consider to be normal in our, just in our culture. There are so many things that we consume that are straight drugs. Yeah, a lot of things. Yeah. Well, like caffeine. Caffeine, sugar, alcohol. Like these are straight drugs that it's like normal to drink these things on a regular basis. That used to be medicine. <laughs> yeah, but now we all got sugar. Yeah. Now we're all addicted to sugar. Yeah. Apparently. For those who didn't know, you are addicted to sugar unless you have actively made a decision not to. Yes. You, listener, right now, you are an addict. <laughs> <laughs> what a horrible thing to say to someone. Well, <laughs> someone's got to say it. <laughs> all right. Well, enough about Big Sugar and our conspiracy to take them down. Or they're conspiring first. so They really, conspired they to take us down from the inside. Uh, yeah, that. I definitely, next, I say the next. The first time I run Cyberpunk, maybe I need to add a Big Sugar <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> to this dystopian future. I don't know. I really do want to run Cyberpunk at some point. And I feel like I need to run Cyberpunk soon uh, specifically cyberpunk red that's the latest edition yep. so that's the version of the rulebook that i have but i feel like i need to run cyberpunk before this blade runner 
RPG comes out. Yeah. Which yeah, apparently yeah. I don't I don't know if it has a solid release date, but I saw a headline saying it's supposed to be coming out this fall, which is sooner than I was expecting. That's like so, really soon. Really soon. Really soon. And that's one that I really want to play because it's made by the same developers yep. who did the Alien RPG, which is which we loved the one really time we played good. it. The one time we played it, I we I, I, again I'm working on I'm working on a mini series. I have an idea for one. You have characters too. I'm sure I, I, I want to play a kid. <laughs> you are so determined to play a kid. Like the moment you found out that kid was a class. Yeah, kid. <laughs> it's called kid. You've just been obsessed. Yeah, because you're basically playing like Newt and other characters right. like that from the film franchise. But you've just been obsessed with the idea of playing a kid in an RPG. And I have no idea why. <laughs> because I have no idea, actually. <laughs> you just want to be a kid. I just want to be a kid. You just want to be a little stinker. I want to be, I want to be a little stinker just running around going like, <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'll kick somebody in the shins and running away. <laughs> yeah, that sounds par for the course. And then getting PTSD. Yeah, that comes after the fact. Yeah. But it's okay, though. You get XP as well. You can actually get... That's the thing about can the you, alien system. You can't actually get PTSD mechanically. Can you like, get... It is baked into the mechanics that you can become permanently traumatized. In fact, that's what happened to your yeah. character at the end of our one shot. Which was weird that my character lived, but... I had no control over that yeah, character. You were a complete <laughs> I was vegetable. a vegetable. You were a complete vegetable. Yeah. I was, I was a vegetable and technically the only living creature to survive <laughs> to survive that one shot. Technically. Uh, for those who haven't seen, I ran one of the alien modules. Yeah. The one that specifically comes in the core rulebook as a one shot adventure on our YouTube channel. I'll link that in the show notes. Of course. That, so, was, that was a fascinating experience. Never, never had a, a table gaming experience like that. Oh, yeah. It is a fascinating RPG. And I'm so glad that it exists and I want to play a little bit more of it. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, the same developers are making the Blade Runner RPG. For those who don't know, absolutely love Blade Runner, both films. But yeah, just Blade Runner as a whole is just so, so cool. And the original film is just something that's really grown on me over time. I think the first time I watched it, I, you know, it didn't make too big of an impression on me just because I think I was young yeah. and didn't it, like the ideas were we a little get bit it. too big. Yeah, yeah there, there wasn't really, although I know a lot of people did fall in love with that movie while young. But that was when it was like coming out in theaters and stuff. That's, that's, that's when it was novel. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was novel. Like I, I listened to some people's account of falling in love with the original Blade Runner back when you only had the theatrical cut too, mind right. you as well. Right. Like people were falling in love with like what the is, worst version. What, of the yeah, what, what is agreed to be the, the most inferior version? Yeah, well, it's, it's a bit of a double edged sword, though, because it is the most inferior version as a work of cinema. But as people it's have most pointed accessible. out, it's the most accessible and it's the only one that really makes, you know, sense because, well, it's well it is. because it explains it has terrible voiceover that <laughs> explains so many things that you just wouldn't get otherwise. Right. Yeah. Just so much world building detail and all sorts of other little things are in that voiceover. And like, that's why I always recommend starting with the theatrical cut, mm -hmm. because the other cuts are just really hard to watch if you don't have that foundation of at least, you know, understanding yeah, a little bit more of the world well, and having it explained to you. Yeah. But yeah, the theatrical cut is otherwise terrible. Yeah. Blade Runner needs a primer. Uh, we will probably talk more about this when we get to Blade Runner on PQ Film School. I was, I was about to get there because like we have a very specific way that we like to consume movies. And if you watch our video essay on how we consume movies, highly recommend that. Yes. Put in the show notes as well. We love having a little primer before going into any film because mm. some films need it, but all films can benefit from just talking about who made it, who's in it, why it was made, the era it came out in, the yeah. impact that it had oh, on, yeah. on culture, this and is then watching it. Critical reading, essentially. Yeah. This is like what 
critical textual analysis is about. You can't just dive into a work of art, although you can sometimes if Mm -hmm. you just need to engage with it on a superficial level. But it is always beneficial to really understanding a piece of artistic creation to understand its context. You can't just take it on its own terms. And this is the thing that I'm finding out about a lot of stuff and realizing really as I'm getting older, realizing more and more the importance of that. For example, I'm a big fan of the Bible Project. Yes. Right. They're a, a nonprofit ministry that creates awesome animated videos uh, doing expository work on biblical literature. And they have an awesome podcast series and all that. Dr. Tim Mackey, their sort of main Bible scholar in residence, he kind of talks about that a lot of how to read the Bible and how they read the Bible specifically. And it's completely paradigm shifting, continually blows my mind on their podcast. But like when they specifically dived into what their principles are for reading the Bible, I'm like, this is a level of critical textual analysis that I just like wasn't brought up in yeah. and didn't realize is like just the... I, I shouldn't say the best way to read the Bible, but one of the great ways, because there's no right way to do it, but it's there are better ways. There's yeah. so much insight that you get from really diving deep and understanding the culture and context and just the purpose of the text as well. Yeah, because a lot of people try to take any sort of artistic text, but especially the Bible and interpret it through a lens in which the authors didn't intend or weren't that, aware of. Or weren't even yeah, or weren't even aware were a possibility, and just completely contort it out of fashion. Yeah, and it's it's problematic yeah. on a number of levels, especially doctrinally, but mostly culturally. So yeah, that's that's what I love that they do on the Bible Project, and I feel like that's also just a good habit and a good practice for any kind of textual analysis, any kind of deep critical engagement with the arts. Uh, And that's one thing they really tried to reclaim is like the Bible as a work of artistic, creative literature, Um, which isn't to say that it is untrue. And I suppose any arts people will know, like creative works, like part of their purpose is to get at truth, you know, In, in often ways using creativity gets closer to the truth than you would be able to otherwise. Absolutely. But anyway, yeah, that's a whole other separate thing. But my point is good analytical practice to understand context and uh all sorts of other things about anything you're going into yeah that's a work of art speaking of like just context uh if we want to talk about the art world like the physical art world one of my favorite artists is andy warhol are you familiar with andy warhol yeah he's very uh pop culture-y <laughs> kind of because he wasn't that first well isn't that what that's the idea pop right thing is so. well because the andy warhol is basically the reason we have the reason we culturally isn't that a very accept thing to say that you're one of your favorite artists is andy warhol sure mm. i don't care <laughs> <laughs> but the reason i like andy warhol is because he's one of the reasons that we accept mass-produced art because he was one of the first people to do that he pioneered silk screening and he pioneered like the art style that he had was was called pop art which was silk screened basically stencils that he reproduced, he mass reproduced various illustrations that beg the question, like, does art mean anything if there's infinite copies of it? Which is a deep question. And nobody had thought to ask that question before. Right. And he was one of the first people to ask it. Pre-new media and all that. Yeah. Like, apparently he also went on to do films and everything, uh, stuff like that as well. He did documentaries and films and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I haven't seen any of that because I I mostly know him through an art history lens. Through my art class, uh, I was introduced to his, his whole philosophy of art. Right. And... That was one of the first things that I realized it doesn't make any sense to think about Andy Warhol now if you don't consider where he came from. Right. Because he, he was just in a different world. If you, if you look at any of Andy Warhol's works today, they are no different from a printer because mm. that was the idea. Yeah. Because he came 
before that. Mm-hmm. But what we have now, like if you if you wanted your favorite artist's, you know, DeviantArt image, you can mm-hmm. just download it on your printer and print it out. And that's just something you can do now. So it doesn't make sense for Andy Warhol's style to be unique if you consider it through today's lens. Just because the only reason you, we can even be here is because that had to happen first. And if you look at any piece of art, film, paintings, literature, a lot of that stuff comes down to just context, knowing that some things had to come first for other things to happen and knowing that we are the result of that thing having happened. Yeah, that's understanding and rooting everything in historical context is vastly important. Now, here's the question. So is it then that like you would say he's like one of your favorite artists or is it just that you think he's historically significant? Right. Uh, like, is, is, is it not in so far as like his art really speaks to you or that like you just think he's, I don't know, vital in a little bit of, you know, how vital that stepping stone was a little bit of both simply because, for example, Picasso or Van Gogh. I understand their historical significance, but I don't personally dig their art. Right. Like, well, yeah, I, I mean, obviously it's good art, but it, it just doesn't, it, it, speak it doesn't to personally speak to me. Level. Yeah. I mean, I, I can I can absolutely just rave about how technical yeah, technically proficient they are as, as well as uh, talk about their philosophy. But no, like I, I, I genuinely like a lot of Andy Warhol's art, if only because I do have a little bit of like a kind of background in like stenciling and graffiti's kind of stuff. Mm. I haven't done too much of it, but I have done a little bit. So I kind of dabbled. I've, I've dabbled. I've dabbled in graffiti. <laughs> <laughs> no, just spray paint stuff. So I have a little bit more understanding of uh, the process that goes into his art as well. Whereas I've never done an oil painting. Have I you never know. done an oil painting? I've, I've never done oil. I've done a lot of acrylic spray paint. And I guess technically I did a little bit of sculpture at one point, but that was, I think, one time in class. Now you're a digital artist. How now does I'm that a, feel? Do now I'm a dirty? digital artist. No, I feel clean. I don't have to get my hands <laughs> dirty. <laughs> you, fair, you, know how, you know how dirty oh, acrylics are? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to uh, do a deep dive perhaps sometime on some of your favorite artists though like yeah. uh, actual like media artists not like you know uh, not new media so although sometimes it can yeah that's true sometimes it people, some people are bit. mixed media yeah and well and for context for those who just aren't in that world i suppose to clarify right. some vocabulary terms new media is like basically an academic synonym for what we now call digital media so if that's not something you're already familiar with that's what we mean by that new media yeah Digital stuff. Digital stuff. But everything that's not new media is like, obviously, the implication is old media, but right. it used to just be called media, right? Anything physical, anything print, even, even print is, you know, kind of pushing it. You know, that's right. kind of that, that. That's when you start really start going in the direction of new media territory. That's where uh, you get your Andy Warhols. Yeah. Well, and when mass production comes into play, right? When you get the printing press, that was really the birthplace of new media before new media, right? Yeah. Because then we started conceiving of ideas that are just normative now in the new media world. That's a whole thing, but we don't have time to get into that yeah, history. Uh, at least not for this episode. Not for this episode. Not for this episode. Because, yeah, we definitely have to talk about H.R. Geiger and other, other yeah. people you've really... Do you know who my favorite worked. artists are? I know you really like H.R. Geiger. I love H.R. Geiger. I, know, I at least know that much. Yeah. Yeah, are there any artists that you could do a deep dive on? It's been interesting seeing... I'm not sure if you've seen this, but Matt Colville has been doing on Twitch these deep dives and obviously he does deep dives often he does i like, love his deep just dives. just on a whim but just because he has such a reservoir of knowledge but he's been doing deep dives on all sorts of subjects lately like namely music artists and oh apparently i had pretty fascinating those. i don't yeah. know i don't know if there are any music artists that are there any music artists that we'd be able to do like just off the, the top of our head a deep dive on maybe not off the top of our head but with like a moment's preparation the only thing that i could probably think of is either 
Slipknot. I was or... thinking Slipknot. Yeah, we, I think we have a, a strange amount yeah. of like knowledge of arcane Slipknot lore. <laughs> arcane Slipknot lore. Yeah, because there's a lot of Slipknot lore. There's a lot. Yeah. Well, there's well, there's like there's whole, there's a whole nine members worth. Actually, <laughs> yeah. plus because yeah, now now <laughs> yeah. I haven't really kept up with them in recent years, but. But even so, like there is lore about the new members. Like they didn't get to pick their new mask because the mask that they designed for themselves sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, this is that new. I don't know that reboot lore. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I like the new albums. If you haven't heard them, I really like them. No, I haven't really. Um, heard. the one that the not in many years. The one that ha- that they just released after, not the one they okay. Tenses. Let me think about this for a second. The one that was released right after the death of Paul Gray. Mm-hmm. That album is fantastic as a tribute album. Yeah, yeah. Was that the gray chapter? I believe it was the gray uh, chapter. I, I yeah. suppose that's why it would be so titled. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't listen to that one, but I found a random nut on my, <laughs> on my desk. That's weird. We were fixing um, Raph's chair, but yeah. right before we started, and I and suppose we missed the nut. No, we didn't. That's an extra one. Where did I get an extra nut from? I literally don't know. I, I, so I, we pulled it up. Somebody's like, gonna take that sound bite out of context. <laughs> <laughs> we we upturned Raph's chair that he uses for his desk and had to like screw it back together. Oh my goodness! I could I just pulled it's, a piece of metal off of it. it that just, it got is magic. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Ooh. Okay. Now my fingers are dirty. <laughs> yeah. So don't lick them. I'll try not to, even though it looks very salty. <laughs> <laughs> it's not salt. <laughs> Where were we? Oh, we're talking about Arcane Slipknot lore. You're talking about Paul Gray and the Gray chapter. One thing that I found out rather recently, though, about Slipknot lore (laughs) is I didn't actually realize that Paul Gray wrote what might be my favorite Slipknot song of all time. Did you write Vermillion? Um, I guess pair of Slipknot songs, technically. But I consider them as one song. They're a part one and a part two. Yeah, Vermillion. Yeah. I didn't know that Paul Gray wrote that one. I didn't know that either. Yeah, because I know Corey Taylor is one of their, obviously, yeah. uh, lead songwriters, but apparently they share that duty a lot mm-hmm. um, since they're just such an ensemble band. But yeah, I did not know that Paul Gray wrote Vermillion. And it's a bit of a concept song. Yeah. But it's also, I don't know, just like very emotionally interesting. But it, yeah, that, that, that song is incredibly, strangely, <laughs> you know, meaningful to me in the way it hits. Yeah. But essentially, like what he pitched it as. Uh, at least the way uh, I think Corey Taylor recounted it being pitched to him by Paul was as basically a song from the POV of a stalker. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's very it's it's a very winding and delirious and fascinating little song if you haven't heard it. But yeah, it is. Oh, that song does some stuff to me. <laughs> yeah, no, there's it, it's one of those songs that's how do you best describe it? Like uncomfortably familiar. Yeah, it's uncomfortably familiar, but it's like it's weird because it's dark. Yeah. And it's sinister, but at the same time it's like tragic and kind and of intimate. melancholy. Yeah, and intimate, yeah. but like in a twisted sort of yeah. way. Yeah. And yeah, it's just it's it, it's an artistic masterpiece in my opinion. Honestly, yeah, hands down my favorite Slipknot song all time if Agreed. you consider the two as one. Agreed. Up there among my favorites. Mm-hmm. I don't really like there is there is um the way that I have favorites of anything is there is a tier above my favorites, which are my transcendental favorites, which is anything that exists in that space is just it's so key to my being that I can't really rank any one of them. And uh, Vermillion is in that in that area of, of just songs. In oh, my yeah. Life. Oh, yeah. It's profound. Profoundly yeah. good. To be fair, a lot of songs in that range are not songs. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Again, because they were just I feel like they were kind of formative for us. Yeah. Which is like weird. 
I listened to way too much Slipknot when I was a kid, and I don't think that helped me at all. <laughs> I was going to, yeah, I would say the same. Like, I feel like, well, because it was, I think that was like a part, and it's weird because like, I really l- still like them. I think they're great musically. Yeah. Um, But it's like really hard to recommend to anybody now as who I am now. Yeah. Because it's like, I felt like that was a part of my life where I felt like I needed that. And, you know, not to, not, not to say that, like, I don't want to go the full puritanical route and say like all metal is just bad and yeah. it's bad for you it's just like no there's a there's a place for that sound and there's a place for that emotion yeah it's anger oh yeah raw anger yeah. right so it's like and i feel like there's obviously not all anger is bad anger and i think there's a healthy way to have a relationship with one's anger and one thing that's really helped me to understand that more lately especially as from a christian point of view is that also the bible gives place to anger as well and obviously there are cautions against it right because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of god right that's james but there are also the imprecatory psalms for example which is like a whole category of psalms that are basically just anger psalms, right? Just like rage music. Yeah. And it's like, that's basically that's metal, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it's usually about uh, righteous anger, right? But yeah, like some, it's still like a raw emotional expression that everybody has and there are certain places for. But specifically, yeah, I think in that time in my life, and I think especially, you know, if you're gravitating towards bands like Slipknot at that like internal emotional level, it's not typically a healthy one. And there's I think there's healthy ways to relate to it now that I've matured more. But again, it's still hard to recommend because it's like it's not something that I no longer feel as a necessity. And when it's not a necessity, it's, you know, kind of it's kind of hard to look back on and revisit those emotions. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a strange relationship that I have with Slipknot where, yeah, because like I'm going through a lot of actually proper therapy now to help deal with like my anger issues because I have a relationship with anger that is long historied and complicated. And, uh, you know, again, listening to Slipknot probably didn't help, <laughs> but I can listen to Slipknot now and just really get into the mood and completely separate myself from how I used to interact with Slipknot. At least, right. with, at least with, you know, very particular selection of their songs were just my go-tos for letting stuff out and just be like, yes, yes, Corey gets me and he's a raging alcoholic and not a very good husband. Mm. And, and it's like, addict. and a drug addict. And it's like, there's, that's not the kind of heroes you want. Right. So I can completely separate myself now, going back to those songs, listen to them and realize that the Corey Taylor that we have now, now that he's, you know, he's cleaned up, cleaned up, he's sober, um, he's sober and, you know, he's rehabilitated. He's like a good dude now. <laughs> there is there is a level that you have to be at that. Yeah. Necessitates going through that. Right. But if you don't need it, you probably shouldn't gravitate toward it. Yeah. And hopefully you can mature with them in that yeah. sense right like and the sense that he cleaned up his act but at the same time like artistically speaking it is impressive what they managed to accomplish back in that day just because of how raw yeah. and how real it was right yeah. because they were in that dark place with you there's a certain level of reality to the rage and the expressions of anger and hatred and vitriol in all of their music that you can't fake, yeah. right? And especially you told me the story, I didn't know about this actually, that about Corey Taylor, how he destroyed his voice doing Slipknot in the yeah. early years because he wasn't doing proper screaming technique. He was not yelling. Be- not because he didn't know how to, but because it was, that's just not what it was about. Yeah. And later on, and you could, and ever since you pointed out to me, you could tell, like if you listen through their albums, there's a marked difference between the, the way he screamed in 
you know, 98 to early 2000s, right? Yeah. Slipknot, yeah. Uh, self-titled in Iowa days compared to like, well, volume three, the only album, the first album that came afterwards, you could like, it, like jump cuts. You yeah. could tell he's going from a very dangerous, very damaging form of screaming and yelling and just gruelingly screaming his heart out. Yeah. If and you want all the way to volume three, where you've got this much cleaner, much healthier, what would you call that? His false, uh, false chord scream. Yeah. He, is, yeah, he does a lot of false chord and he does both. He does a pretty good false chord and fry? Uh, fry scream. Okay. Yeah. If you want a fantastic, just side by side example of Corey Taylor, basically on drugs and off drugs, <laughs> <laughs> listen to the last song on Iowa, Iowa, which is like a nine minute, literally drug fueled scream fest to any one of the radio friendly songs on volume three <laughs> and it's it's a complete it's like two different bands almost yeah and it's like that's the same guy and neither neither one is still stone sour you know and, he, and neither <laughs> so one is stone still, sour still, it's still, yeah it's not not necessarily because he was that. still yeah. he was doing stone sour while i'm which pretty was sure a lot more yeah radio friendly which was like while he was still doing the the slipknot thing but slipknot was where he needed to go to yell to scream into the void and capture it on on microphone yeah I guess we do have a lot of thoughts about Slipknot. Yeah, that would be one we could do a deep dive on, or maybe we just did. I think we might have just done one. (laughs) Well, before we get too far away from Blade Runner earlier, though, we were talking about Blade Runner a bit. For sure. I was going to ask you if you'd heard about Blade Runner 2099. I might have. Because I'm kind of jazzed about I'm not sure at this point. I I don't want to say I'm jazzed about that. I'm I'm conflicted. I don't know how to feel. (laughs) (laughs) I need therapy. (laughs) Okay, so Blade Runner 2099. Hit me. The, uh, this is actually going to be, and it looks like it's going to be Amazon Studios distributing. So it's probably going to go up on Amazon Prime. Oh, that's weird. Um, yeah. So oh, that's already weird. Developing a Blade Runner live action series, which is fascinating because first off, I mean, I, I'm, I'm game for it. I'm very curious what they're going to do. It is a direct sequel to Blade Runner 2049. Mm hmm. In the same way that that was a direct sequel to the original film. And I think I would have preferred another movie, but I don't know. I don't know if they were able to financially justify that, which is why I'm, what I'm oh, wondering. Oh, so is. they turned like, it into a series? Yeah, they turned it into a series instead. Although I'm still not sure that's easier to produce, but, you know, still, <laughs> I think it's, just it's the, hard to get producers to sign off yeah. on a film that didn't do as well as it was projected to do in the box office. Yeah, I think purely if you just look at the numbers, it's easy easier to produce. Yeah. It's easier to justify and get funding for. But yeah, Ridley Scott is executive producing the series uh-huh. and it's going to direct, be a, a sort of direct follow up to 2049. Right. Yeah. I don't know if we know the showrunner for it, but Silka Luisa is credited as writing and executive producing. So possibly I'm not familiar with that name, but apparently she's done a big Apple TV plus project coming up which is a streaming platform that i'm still kind of befuddled by i don't know how to feel about apple tv plus there's an apple tv plus mm-hmm. for your apple tv for those of you who own one <laughs> wait what here's the thing i don't actually know if you can get apple tv plus on non-apple platforms is it what that because but like they have really good stuff on there actually <laughs> Uh, they have a few at least bigger projects that should be illegal <laughs> <laughs> so that being said it's just fascinating to me because I kind of want to get your vibe on it. Okay. And I also kind of want to talk generally about how Ridley Scott's old franchises are kind of getting picked up right now for series, for the serial format, which I find very fascinating because I don't, 
I didn't necessarily think they would lend themselves well to it, but we've seen really awesome stuff done in serial formats lately. And I'm wondering how that's going to be because, right, Alien is being turned into a TV show as well. It is. It's a live action show. Yeah. And now sure Blade you told me about that. just got that treatment. Uh-huh. Or is getting that treatment. So those are both currently in development. And I don't know how I, how I feel about that. Because on the one hand, I'm excited. I just want to see more from these worlds. Of course. I love them so much. And I'm so invested in them. But at the same time, it feels like this is a fresh opportunity to ruin them. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, would you watch a TV show about aliens produced by Waylon Yutani? <laughs> <laughs> That's point. the question we got to be point. asking. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I do want to see a lot more alien. But there is a point where it's like, because with Alien, they're such good films, and there are such a limited number of them compared to the scope of its world, right? And if it's oh, yeah, and its yeah. War, right? Technically, like, the runtime of the four films combined, plus, you know, Prometheus and Covenant, if you want to count them, like, isn't that much for the sheer scope of the world they developed for them. So it feels, it always feels, I don't know about you, but when watching those movies, it always felt like to me that we're only seeing such tiny glimpses of this fully fleshed out world. And so there, it always leaves you longing for more. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it, le- it leaves you, it, which is a good feeling, right? Because like there's such complete stories on their own, but they leave you feeling like there's so many stories out there in this world. Yeah, that probably lends itself more. I don't know how these shows are going to be. I guess kind of like anthology style. Yeah, perhaps. Uh, web series or yeah. Technically TV, web TV series, but TV, TV series. series. <laughs> the, the line blends these days. It's really weird. They're TV series on the web. Mm, yeah, web po- shows in the style of TV shows. Quite possibly. Yeah, I don't know about. I don't know if that's what they'll actually do because I think it's going to be yeah more of a. We saw what happened when Covenant. Yeah. Happened. Uh, I mean, I think we just need to break away and look at other corners of the world that we haven't yet explored. Well, and that's that's part of the issue that I'm getting at is it always the movies always made me feel. Like there's more out there to be explored in this world. But after they did too many of the movies, it almost starts to feel like we've seen too much, right? Like it's ruined the luster of it when Mm. you show too much because the first two leave you feeling like there's so much more out there. Then they produce two more films and you're like, okay, I think I've seen enough. I think I've seen (laughs) enough. No, please stop. No, (laughs) don't do it again. Yeah, don't do it again. Right. Like they, they almost made you sick of it. I, don't, I can't relate to this feeling because I was never huge into Star Wars, but it kind of reminds me of how some people feel with like Star Wars nowadays, right? Yeah. Where at a certain point when there were kids and you only had the trilogy, like they felt like they're want, they wanted to see so much more Star Wars. And now we're getting so much more Star Wars and they're just like, I, uh, make it stop. Yeah. I didn't know what I was asking for. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't know what I was asking for. Yeah. This is horrible. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way about Aliens to a certain extent, right? It was like two masterpiece films followed by too much information. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, well, it's just like it's I too much. Like, the, the franchise would have been better without the third and fourth movies. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not just that, like, you can't just, like, ignore them, too, just because <laughs> of the way, you know, the continuity works. It's like, I mean, you can. You you could just watch the first two movies on repeat indefinitely yeah. and end it and say, like, that's, uh, that's how I remember Ripley. But, like, you can't ignore the, the fact that the, her story keeps going. It's like, it's yeah. so hard to ignore. And it's just like, but the story would have been so much better if it had just ended a wee bit sooner. Especially Alien 3. I mean, Alien Resurrection, I think, has some redeeming qualities. But ooh, Alien 3 makes my blood boil. Straight bad. Straight bad. Yeah. But I, it's just too much. It's too much of the same thing. Like, it's, especially when it comes down to Star Wars as well. I, I think having more options and having d- more diverse paths that you can take I, I think will help you know revitalize the novelty of it because if, it, if you're just banging on on the same story there's only so many ways 
There's only so many ways you can tell the same story. And yeah. Ripley's story finished. But here's the thing. In two episodes, did, like in two movies. They did start telling different stories. They introduced new concepts and whatnot in those third and fourth movies. They tried to. I suppose so. I guess, yeah, I guess it's like, were they new stories or were they new plots? Because they're definitely new plots. Yeah. And the plots were so new that it got weird yeah. like, really fast. You know what I mean? Yeah. You got Dog Xenomorphs, which was kind of cool, except that it was like a CGI, oh, early CGI, CGI mess. Yeah. Like, um, I still can't believe that movie humps. was directed by David Fincher, who is such a visual master nowadays. Yeah. But I think he just phoned it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it still blows my mind that that's a David Fincher movie. Hands down, his worst movie of all time. Like, he never did anything nearly that bad ever again. <laughs> Maybe the rest of his career is just an apology for that movie. It's my bad. Here, let me give you a fight club instead. It's yeah. like, ooh, this I like. But yeah, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like, it felt like there are two great films. You wanted to see so much more. We got so much more. They failed us, but then they redeemed themselves with Prometheus, which, yeah. contrary to popular, that's a good, popular consensus, I really love that. I movie. love it. I absolutely love it. And that's what I'm talking about. Like that was a good direction to go in. Like that was yeah. like that was new. Yeah. It was that new was novel, new story, new characters. Mm-hmm. Like and, yeah, actual new not story. Just plot. Yeah, new story. Yeah, because yeah. so, we, we talked a lot about story versus plot. Uh, if you want to uh, deep dive for another for another time, we'll, I was we'll say, definitely you, have probably have a full episode on story versus plot, or else like I don't know, a P Cube Film School lecture. Maybe. But I was gonna say if you want to know the story. Story of the first two uh, Aliens films. We have those. Uh, That's true. Watch the PQ yep. Film School episodes. Yep, on Alien 1 and 2. Or just Alien and Aliens. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah. New story, new characters, n- new themes with like that felt rich and invigorated. Yeah. It made me think a lot. Yeah. Like a, I thought a lot after that film. I'm still thinking about that film yeah. to this day. Like there's just so much philosophical inquiry that it does that really forces you to turn your head if you catch on to all the little hooks and stuff that it's planting. And I think that's also probably part of the problem. I think it is a little bit less accessible insofar that's as its deepest it. yeah. depths require a lot of thought and a little bit of foreknowledge about like mythology and yeah. religion and other things. So it's like, yeah, I, I could see why the the popular audience would kind of bounce off of that, I suppose. Yeah. But like for me, for us, like that's the exact kind of pretentious nonsense yeah. that we love. We love it. <laughs> you know? We're going and just like, yeah, just just fill my brain. <laughs> Fill my brain with engineer juice. And do you know and you know what happened right after they made that? They showed us too much. They did it again. They showed us too much. And that's when it becomes stale. Yeah. Well, yeah. Prometheus was a good idea. That was taking taking the, the world and concept that we loved and finding a new lens to view it through. Mm-hmm. And with new monsters. It, which is, you know, part of the, the dopeness of it. Yeah. In giving us one of the one of the best suspense pieces that I've seen lately. Oh yeah, yeah, the whole birthing sequence yeah, the, is just a the, master the C-section class, scene, masterclass suspense set piece. And for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, I don't even want to describe it right now because yeah. it kicks so much butt, and you got to see it for the first time with yeah. your own eyeballs. But you need, yeah, you need, you need to watch that. Oh yeah, just, well, okay. Just we're gonna advocate right now. If, <laughs> if you like Alien or the Alien universe. Watch Prometheus if you haven't already. If you like science fiction and horror in general yeah. and aren't familiar with the Alien universe, you could watch Prometheus on its own without even a familiarity with the Alien franchise. That is franchise. true. That is true. Having but, a little bit of a background knowledge, uh, you don't have to watch the first two films, but having a little bit of a background knowledge helps. It gives you appreciation helps. for all the Easter eggs. Really. And all the characters as well, that, who are all uh, established, like the Yutanis and... Oh, yeah, the, yeah, that's just yeah. world-building stuff. But, but, honestly, but just so you, you know get, who they are. You get more information on them in that film, though, than well, you do in all the well, other films That's combined. also true. <laughs> Actually, I would recommend just watching the fake Ted Talk that they released before that video, yes really uh, that really viral marketing film. campaign that and then the movie is pretty much all you need to watch oh yeah hands down 
But yeah, yeah, advocate right now. Watch Prometheus. Yeah. If you don't have sweaty palms right now, <laughs> then like watch that sequence and you will. Like it's yeah. a quick fix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, why do you need the whole chair? You only need the edge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like I was just, I remember seeing that in theater and just being just like on the edge of my seat. But like, oh, it was, it was actually, so sure was uncomfortable. On the edge of my seat or if I was like hovering into my, I was, I was hovering over this because like my, I was, my hands were on the rest, just pushing. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> this is happening. It was so uncomfortable to oh, watch in the best brutal. horror way possible. It's, ah, uh, that, that to me, that sequence is just, that is horror at its best. Yeah. It is reactive in the sense that it will provoke physical reactions yeah. out of you <laughs> yeah. that you did not know you could have. Oh, man. Oh, Prometheus is so good. And then they ruined it by making a sequel. <laughs> like, oh, you like that? OK, we'll do it again. No, well, no I please. Think, I think, you know, this is just studio stuff. Right? Yeah. It's just like it wasn't even Prometheus 2. They rena- it was Alien Covenant, right? Because you got to cash it on the whole franchise. Like, yep. I wanted to see Prometheus 2. They made Alien Covenant as a sequel. And it just it just sucked. It yeah, was, there was in what sucks worst of all is that they made a lot of the exact same mistakes of Alien Three. Yeah, and so, but it, it, at a certain point, like, and a lot of people are suggesting this. I don't know how you feel, but do you think Ridley Scott just needs to take his hands off this franchise for now? Do you think he's George Lucas himself? Oh, absolutely. No, I have a I have a thing when it comes to let's call it death of the author, right? Because it's it's kind of in that same kind of wheelhouse. Once you've created something so big that it has its own culture based around it, you then have to step off and let the people who love it take control because they know your thing better than you do at this point. There's first of all, there's more brains out there. You are a single individual who came up with the conception of what was hopefully a good idea. And a lot of other people, several other brains all latched on and turned it into something else. You then have no control over, I don't think you should have any control over where that goes from that point forward because it becomes something else. Like its own organism. It's, it becomes its own organism. That's like, it's a, it becomes a memetic organism. Uh, maybe something we might have to talk about in a later episode, a memetics. But what you conceived of is not what you made. You made something else. Right. You, and I think there's a certain amount of artistic humility you need that yeah. George Lucas does not have, evidently. Nope. Which is this idea that what makes something great not what makes something good, but what makes something great, what makes something a thing that latches on to the pop culture brain and that survives the test of time, what makes something great, truly significant, is not you, yeah. right? It's not something, I mean, and yes, to a certain extent, like Star Wars couldn't have had that without George Lucas's, you know, mind and without his specific conglomeration of tastes and history and all the different genres he was trying, he loved that he was trying to bend into one. We couldn't have got that without it being George Lucas at the helm. That is true. But there's a certain amount of artistic humility you need to be able to see, because yes, we couldn't have gotten it without him, but it couldn't have become what it was without everybody else. Yes. All the, the brilliant team that he surrounded himself with. And I think it was his wife was the editor, right? Yeah, who, she the saved brilliant the editor yeah. who saved the movie. And created one of the most memorable climaxes of all time. Like, you don't get that without the whole team. Like, what made Star Wars great was not specifically him, even if he was the one most necessary element. But there's a certain amount of artistic humility you need because if you've, I feel like if you've been creating for long enough, or at least if you've been observing the creative world for long enough, there's a certain sense that you might recognize this pattern of the fact that artists don't get to choose their masterpieces. Right. Yeah. You can't decide when you're going to make a masterpiece. It just happens. Right. If something latches on 
to popular culture, if something really hits the hearts of a large number of people and spreads like wildfire from there, that is not something that was entirely within your control. The only thing you do is keep creating. Yeah. That's the only thing you've got to do. Yeah, you come up with the idea, but if if it latches on, that that part of your work that was is not, not you. you. Yeah. Yeah. That that is something that happens completely organically. And I feel like with people like George Lucas, I mean, uh, and I get where he's coming from because as an artist, you always want to keep revising. I get that impulse. Every every creative has that. But A, first off, just finish projects and move on. <laughs> we, that's something we keep advocating for. That's something we need to do better at. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's a thing. I've heard, uh, I heard a phrase recently that's, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Exactly. Um, so there's that, that impulse that he's obviously wrestled with. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, yeah, like I feel like he needed to take that step back and realize that like what made it great was not on him. Exactly. Right? And it's, so it is not his to perfect anymore it it becomes so much bigger than one individual yeah and i feel like that's what happened with alien and ridley scott absolutely because especially when you look at the original franchise like i said two perfect films one of them wasn't even directed by him right like he only (laughs) did the first film that's literally the only hand besides producing that he had in the original franchise was directing the very first film and then james cameron took it and then mm, nailed it right yeah like it took an entirely other creative voice to uh, arguably perfect it. Yeah. Right. Like I still love both those films perhaps equally, but like, he, oh yeah, Cameron nailed it. Absolutely nailed it in a way that Ridley Scott couldn't have. Cause he probably didn't even want to, you know, <laughs> do what Cameron did, but it's, yeah, it's just, that's how that stuff happens. It needs to happen organically. It needs to happen in the creative, natural way that these things go. And you can't have that with somebody vying for singular creative control. Yes. And I feel like really Scott did it again with Prometheus, right? I think he knocked it out of the ballpark once again, but then he held on to it too long with wanting to direct the sequel and, you know, Ryan direct the sequel. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe he needs the maybe he needs to back off a little bit. Well, I, I love him, but maybe he needs to let aliens go. Yeah. I, I don't know why, especially creators who are in such a position where they get to have that much control, feel like they have to be at the helm constantly. Mm-hmm. Because if you have that much control, you can't pick the person who's right for the job to direct it, right? I yeah. would assume. Yeah. And that person isn't always, obviously, you. <laughs> but nonetheless, like, I don't know. Is I it just like- that you're, like, you just can't see it because you're too close? Yeah, that's probably it. It's a proximity thing. So that's why I'm a little skeptical, right? Because I feel like we've gone through this ebb and flow with aliens before, where it's just like, you've seen too little yeah. and you want to see more. You think it's then happening we've seen again? too much and then you want to scale back. And now we're getting a whole show's worth of runtime in the alien universe. And I'm worried that that might ruin it, right? That might ruin the mysterious yeah. luster and sense of wonder that you get with exploring that world in such limited capacity as we've had so far. You know what you're telling me? Hmm. We need to run more RPGs in the world. <laughs> yes. Let's take creative <laughs> ownership. I need to finish my, yeah, my alien trilogy of uh, sort of mini campaign that I want to run I've got in a, that system. I've got a series of one shots that I'm ready for. And I'm, I am excited. I am excited for those. Those, those are some of the weirdest one shots I've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm excited as well. But what about Blade Runner? Really quick. What, how do you fancy a Blade Runner show, though? I, have, I don't think I we've have gone absolutely through the no same, idea. We haven't gone through that same flow with Blade Runner yet, right? Just because Blade don't Runner say has yet. been more limited, right? Yeah. It's been even way more limited in, like, total screen time that you get out of it compared to Alien, especially when you consider, like, you know, 
four of the Blade Runner films are like the same movie. <laughs> Literally <laughs> the same like, movie. Literally alternate cuts of the same movie. <laughs> so it's like you don't, there's not an abundance of material to draw on. And then they jump eras every single time. Yeah. So it's like a new setting all over again every time you tell a Blade Runner story. So not sure because, so the show is, it's a web series, or nope, it's a TV show web series <laughs> or whatever. Streaming show. It's a streaming show that will be the direct sequel to 2049. Right. 2099. Uh, is Gosling going to be the lead? I don't think so. Okay. So well, it's, it's new, in the same new... way that 2049, it was the direct sequel to Blade Runner. Right? Oh, okay. So then so it's so like, Gosling's going to be the old man. In the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Old man replicant. Yeah, because I, I don't know. It's really hard. It's really hard to say. I think having that time jump inherently leads to better storytelling because you can't do the same thing over and over again yeah. because there has to be implied history. There has to be implied progress and you have to approach it from a new lens just from one generational gap yeah so I'm, i have high hopes for it i have high hopes as well i hope it's well done i hope it's everything that blade runner should be apparently they did a blade runner anime more recently as well oh. that i uh, apparently I know was it, really good i don't know anything about that so <laughs> it's like wow i didn't who'd have thunk right that we needed more material in this world and that more people would be able to do it well. Yeah. So we'll see. Cause Blade Runner is a very particular atmosphere and style of storytelling to nail. Yeah. And at like a certain part of me felt uncomfortable with opening that to more people just because the few times it has been done so well and it almost feels like a fluke because it's such a niche kind of approach to the genre. Right. Cause it's basically like sci-fi art house. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's like, but like, not like, but it's like a sci-fi art house thriller. Like it's this weird sort of sci-fi noir art house. <laughs> yeah, sci-fi neo noir art house thriller. Yeah, like, it's like it doesn't make any sense. But somehow it's not supposed to make sense. Everybody who's done it has nailed it. Apparently, yeah. so like, 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 like it really shouldn't Scott, work. Denis Villeneuve, and now whoever did the uh, the anime that I've heard good things about that I should probably see just because, like I said, I like that world. So. It, I don't know. It's, it's like a thing that I worry about, but I don't know. Perhaps it's unmerited in this case. But again, we just don't have enough material with Blade Runner to detect a pattern. You know? Yeah. So I don't know. Either way, I'm going to be watching this show. I think I, I do think Blade Runner is set up like the the design values of Blade Runner, I think, are set up so that you have to have at least some kind of new, unique take on it every single time, because I don't yeah. think you can make Blade Runner sequels in the Blade Runner way and make the same film. That's a fair so point. if it's going to be bad, it's going to be bad in an entirely different way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a whole new way that we haven't seen yet. <laughs> whole new kind of suck. Yeah. So, you know, you can look forward to that. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But either way, like I said, I got to run my cyberpunk stuff before that Blade Runner RPG comes out because a part of me worries. Don't get me wrong. I'd still probably be creating stuff in cyberpunk. But a part of me worries that I'm just trying to make cyberpunk tell Blade Runner style stories. Yeah. And now that they're making a system for Blade Runner, I could just jump ship over there. But I don't know. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Are we, are, are we going to? No, I'll ask those questions later when we start the campaign. Or yeah, not the campaign yeah. or one shot or what miniseries did you want to do? I got one shot at first. One shot first. We'll start with one shot. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I have so many ideas. But that Blade Runner RPG apparently is around the corner. Yeah, it's interesting. Alien and Blade Runner, both getting so much more material. I feel yeah. like there's just been a resurgence in Ridley Scott's old franchises, right? A resurgence in interest in them, which yeah. is kind of cool because, like, I love Alien. I love Blade Runner. Might as well. Sure. Yeah, might as well. And if it sucks, I'll pretend it doesn't exist. I was going to say, what's the harm? But I think we, we know what the harm is. <laughs> yeah, well, we've experienced it. We've all experienced Alien 3. Let's, and if you haven't, we won't, we won't subject you to that. <laughs> uh, let's get a Gremlins 3, though. 
We're, we're still waiting on that. Still waiting on Gremlins 3. Nick Lutzko did release a Gremlins 3 thing. Oh, no. I'm afraid to watch oh, it. Oh, no. Okay, we so. better wind this down. We've gone long. We've gone over time. We, there, but there were some juicy conversations in here that I wanted to finish up. Mm. So, thank you all very much for listening. This has been the Hypercube Podcast. This show is edited by Lauren Pacheco, mixed by Rafael Pacheco, with theme music by Mono Memory. Till next time, we'll see you all later. God bless. Peace.